Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One, two, three, go. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. And sometimes on this podcast we have to deal with the unfortunate news of people who pass away from the film community. And the reason we do that is because it's a tremendously fragile place and everyone who expresses their enthusiasm for this art form does their part to keep it vital in our culture. And this week we unfortunately learned about Richard Corliss, the longtime film critic for Time Magazine who passed away, and Richard absolutely filled that category as somebody who was really just uh, an energetic supporter of great cinema in all kinds of different ways. Now, I got to know Richard around New York here and there and sat next to him at the most recent voting for the New York Film Critics Circle. I always admired his writing. He was very eloquent but also accessible. He was able to talk about all kinds of different movies in a way that felt very consistent and also at the same time would challenge you. And and I was always excited by his new reviews up until the very end. But Anne, you had a different relationship to Richard's work because he was really responsible for your career in certain ways, right? Well, you know, everybody has in their life that sort of pivotal person who changed the direction of your career, really, in your life. And he was that person for me. I was working in my first job in the movie business, which is right out of NYU at uh, United Artists in the publicity bullpen. And he came over to get pictures for the movie Carrie, which is on the cover of Film Comment when he was the editor of Film Comment. And we hit it off and he eventually brought me over to Film Comment and, and brought me to journalism and and uh, helped me to learn how to write and, you know, saw something in me that, that was worth, you know, pursuing and it was pretty cool to to work with him and and uh, be his friend over the years and he but just as a writer I mean he was just such an incredible um, um, craftsman and I think one of the things that's really inspiring about critics like that is that there are some people who you can tell after doing the same kind of job as a journalist after a while it becomes a routine it's no longer sort of about the passion that made you want to do this in the first place and when you get to that point, what's, it's almost like there's no reason to continue because it's going to be evident in the work at hand when you don't care anymore. Stop. Well, Time Magazine has a great, um, they really did a great job of, of finding uh, all his best reviews and, and writing about him very beautifully. And, and, uh, and I was remembering, you know, this great piece he did on Ingmar Bergman, who happened to be the, the critic that he, the, the, the movie that he first discovered art films was the seventh seal when he was like 16 years old or but he was great in a way because uh, you know there are the highbrow critics and then there are the lowbrow critics you know there's we championed screenwriting 
and wrote about screenwriting very much so Andrew Saris wrote about directors and they were good friends but but he he was someone who you if you look at his 10 best lists every year and I always got a kick out of it you could count on there being a, a Pixar movie or a George Miller movie or, or something like that, you know, that would be, I think he put happy feet on his 10 best, you know, yeah. he would always go a little bit against the grain and, and understood, um, I think, more than most critics, uh, some many, many critics, and even if Richard was oriented toward the written word, he was a visual uh, sophisticate, and he understood how movies were made, and he knew what art directors and cinematographers did and made friends with them. And, and really, um, I, I mean, he just had a wider, more expansive breadth of, of understanding of the whole history, which he carried in his head of motion pictures, but also the, you know, Asian cinema. You know, he never stopped. He was endlessly curious, endlessly voracious about learning more from anyone he talked to about whatever it was they might know about and that was one of the reasons he was still passionate to the end. And also, I, I thought, sort of uncompromising in a way that very few writers or other, you know, any kind of journalist who worked for bigger outlets can be. I mean, I remember sitting with him for this screening of her at the closing night of New York Film Festival. It was a press screening, and there was an embargo. And... I, we I briefly talked about the fact that there was this embargo, and I could care could totally tell that he just did not care about this thing. And he was the one to break the embargo a few hours later. And I was speaking to somebody who was working on the movie about it afterwards. And well, it, he could afford to do that. Exactly. Like, that's what I was going to say. It was very Time clear. magazine, by the way. <laughs> he was untouchable. Like, they, they you know, if, if I had done something like that, they could have you know, threatened not to invite me to their screenings anymore or something, but they couldn't touch this guy no. because he had a crew. Well, I mean, he wrote life. something, absolutely right. He wrote something like two dozen cover stories, you know, and I remember, I mean, he would walk, he would go write about Disneyland or he would go write about Pixar. Or he'd go write about, um, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg for the cover. I mean, he could, he, he, he was, he was, uh, he wrote about yoga. There was like, I found this <laughs> yoga cover story that he did. He wrote about sports. He wrote about theater and, and, and music. And, and, uh, I think he did a story on the Brill building or something. I mean, he just did some amazing stuff, you know, but everything was well-crafted, just beautifully, wittily, succinctly. He was a, he took a great deal of pride in, you know, how they would call him up at the last minute and say, you have to take this piece that that was, you know, it, all those pieces got shorter and shorter over time. And, and, and he had to put, put it into exactly this many words at the last minute, you know, right. and he could do that. He could green a piece. He could do that kind of, he could keen, he could do things with fonts, you know, he knew how to do all that stuff. And I also appreciated that there, there was something about, at least the persona that he projected for those of us who didn't know him that well, maybe you can, you know, correct me a little bit on this, but, but my sense was that he often sort of gave off this aura of being the smartest person in the room, and if you were brave enough, you could become a part of that world, but you had to be sort of willing to to sort of match his, his wit and, and his intelligence on that level to do that, which is not an easy balance to pull off. I don't think he came across as aloof, but he also wasn't, you know, pandering or anything like that. Right? That's that all true. That's all true. But what I, I guess what I would say is that he, um, once you won his respect, he, he would root for you, you know. And so he really was a mentor for me. He had an enormous impact 
on on me but you were just you were just making me remember um he had the kind of mind that would literally remember every single issue of film comment that he edited you know what was in it what was on the cover he could tell you he would say oh raiders of the lost ark uh, that was 1981 you know february whatever it was june it must have been a summer issue because i was the one who went out and did the interview with george lucas in in san francisco you know yeah. um with Mitch Tuckman, uh, we both did that. And then, you know, he 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 would. He's also someone who who was very good at um, puzzles. Well, and also one another, one other thing which I think is relevant to another topic we're planning to address today is that Richard's work was really crucial in translating certain highbrow cinephile tendencies for a more mainstream audience, and that was especially evident in his ongoing coverage of the Cannes Film Festival, there were very few American critics who went back to Cannes time and again, year after year. I think maybe Todd McCarthy is probably the only one at this point who's been... Or Roger Ebert. Yeah, I mean, you could talk about Corliss and Ebert in a similar vein. I mean, they, 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 they come from a similar generation and they... And, but the thing was, he was a workaholic and he, he, he was, you know, really tireless and pulled all nighters and, you know, just never stopped. And, um, Ebert was like that. They're very similar in that way. Uh, and they, and they were passionate about can. And I remember reading Corliss's review of the tree of life. You know, we all got up at the crack of dawn. We all yep. went to the 830 screening. Fought Everybody rushed inside. out, yeah. you know. To write their reviews. Insane. And then, and his was the best. I swear to God, it really was the best. And I, I read it with awe. Like, he put in everything. He, he he had done his, he must have done his homework ahead of time. Well, also, I think the, certain minds, if, they, if they, they are just really great at expressing their ideas, they don't necessarily need a lot of time to get them out there. It just sort of, I mean, Ebert was also a really fast writer. I mean, you have certain convictions, you have it's a true. strong voice. It just happens. And when you see something that, that happens really quickly, it's, I think, just a very clear-cut reflection of the way that person's mind works so you can go back and look at that tree of life review and i probably you wouldn't change any of it now you know because that's just the way that this person thinks but uh, i don't know what we'll be dashing to get into like that at cam this year there are a lot of other films that were added to the line of nothing on the level of a terrence malick maybe but certainly things that are worthy of anticipation and scrutiny everything from gaspar noe's love which is this 3d allegedly pornographic movie that's almost three hours long, which was added to the Midnight Section, to A Peach Upon Weir's Sathako Cemetery of Splendor, which looks really intriguing. You know, he won the Palm d'Or a few Bring years ago. Regard, though, which, not in the competition. Exactly. Start reading your tea leaves now, because all of this stuff carries some baggage with it. One of the other things I noticed about the Uncertain Regard lineup, which we briefly addressed, was that there are no movies from Sundance. Uh, director's Fortnite is showing Dope, which was a big acquisition there this year. But almost always, at least in, in recent memory, there's been some kind of Sundance representation at Cannes. I heard through the grapevine that this was actually deliberate, that Thierry Frameau, the artistic director of Cannes, didn't want Sundance movies, which would be a very Cannes sort of thing to do on some level, to say, you know, we're the best festival in the world, we don't need to represent something like that. But it also, what's interesting about it on, on a certain level 
is that it, it seems to direct attention away from you know this um, this American perception of what great cinema is and there's a lot more unknown variables on some level there's less of a... well what i pick up from reading the tea leaves is that he's um i think part of what you're saying and i agree with you is that he's eliminating it, it's almost as though there was too much for him to calibrate this time and which is a good sign I mean, it's a sign that there was way too much you know where were I mean the Sundance programmers have the same problem. Where do they put these films? What's going to be in Frontiers? What's going to be in Next? What's going to be in in uh, Competition? What's going to be in World Cinema? You know they have to sort of move things around. But um, I think that he is, if he's saying that, he's 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 getting rid of some slots that he doesn't have to deal with. But I think it's a, a short sighted because if, if you recall, Steven Soderbergh's. Um, Sex Lies of Videotape went from Sundance to Cannes, and, and there are, are other examples that are worth noting. I mean, Fruitvale was in, in Sertown Regard, and, and so Beast was, of, uh, I believe. Yeah, and Beast, and Beast of, of the uh, Southern Wild. And Precious before that. Right, exactly. So if you want to get really They should crass, be willing to. I mean, the crass way to look at those three movies is that in the past, Cannes has turned for its representation of persons of color to Sundance. I mean, that's three right there from recent years, sort of high-profile films with African-American characters that were programmed at Cannes. This year, they've programmed their first film in the official selection from Ethiopia. It's a uh, film that's in a certain regard. So that's one way to maybe start to examine issues of diversity at the festival and whether they really need to be reliant on an American film to fulfill that slot or not. But there's maybe also well, a bigger issue. They did find a, a Me- yeah, they found a Mexican film to put in the competition, yeah. so that that helped because well, that was a the whole Latin American issue was a right. problem. Yeah, because the, the competition is lacking in Latin American films this year, which it's is like a stronger year for Asian cinema. And then the woman Asian director, Japanese director, ended up in Sertown Regard, and so and Sertown Regard in the end has way more women as usual than the competition, which only has two. Yeah, and it's, I don't know if Cannes ever going to be able to figure out how to do this better, maybe not until somebody else is running it. But at the same time, I do appreciate that only this festival seems to invite the kind of scrutiny necessary to generate these conversations, you know. <laughs> That's seems, one way of putting it. I mean, look, <laughs> the festival drives us nuts in all kinds of different ways, but it, it gets us going. And, and I'm really excited about a lot of these movies. There's a lot of unknown variables. But also the director's Fortnite, which was, also, which was announced this week as well, looks incredibly strong. Everything from Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room. He, he uh, premiered uh, Blue Ruin there a few years ago, and now he's got a slightly higher-profile genre film there, to Arabian Nights, which is this six-hour piece by the Portuguese filmmaker Miguel Gomez. It's all yours, there. Eric. <laughs> I'm, if, if they want to show that to me in New York, I will be eternally grateful. But uh, I'm always excited by some kind of challenge. I mean, if you're intimidated by it, that's a good thing. I want movies that uh, who has time? You. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the bottom line. You know, it's like, well, how many movies would I miss? And what if it was bad? In other words, it's, this is this is my philosophy. I let you decide whether it's worth seeing or not. Right. Well, Remember Carlos. Carlos was worth seeing. Totally, you know. totally worth seeing. And also, one Or of the Che, things, you know. Well, but one of the things that's intriguing to me about having those opportunities is that I may never get them in the, quite the same way again. I mean, as a New Yorker, it's quite possible that 
most of the movies worth seeing at Cannes will indeed resurface at the New York Film Festival, and there's a certain privilege in that. At the same time, being able to talk about these movies and discover them in the context of Cannes provides a platform for bringing them to more people if indeed they are worth doing that. So that's what's sort of exciting to me, is looking at something like Arabian Nights and thinking, well, if it's six hours long, it's going to have to prove to me that those six hours are worth enduring. And I'm up for that, not knowing one way or the other right now whether or not that's an experience I should have. Whereas, say, Avengers Age of Ultron is a little over two hours long, and I didn't feel like it earned even 90 minutes of that. So, you know, there's All right, a... let's go there. Let's, <laughs> let's jump from the, uh, from the hope of the sublime uh, to a mainstream blockbuster. Uh, here, my, my take on the movie is that Joss Whedon, who apparently went through the tortures of the damned making this thing. Um, And I ran into him at some, you know, uh, premiere where he clearly under serious stress and duress and trying to, you know, lighten up for anything. Um, But basically, uh, it's a transition film. It's it's one of those things where they're they're just going from one set of Avengers to, you know, another. And, and it's almost as if the, the Avengers have aged out in, in the course of the few years that have gone by since the, since the first one. Um, and they're, you know, passing the torch on to the next. And, and it's just a question of, 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 of how they do that and, and, and give us a good time and have fun with the characters. And, and, and in, in the meantime, you know, it's a lot of noise, but it, it isn't, entirely devoid of entertainment no it's just not a great movie no i mean it looks outstanding i still think whedon excels at bringing some of the the movement elements of the way that these comics make these characters exciting to life in cinematic form i mean it's astounding when you look at individual moments how well they are credible in spite of the fact that you're watching these ridiculous things happen you know the different kinds of powers in play the kind of action sequences the scale of it all is 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 really impressive because i think there's a clarity to it that in a michael bay film you don't necessarily get in quite the same way so we didn't because it always stays character based that is the brilliant move that they made by putting joss whedon in charge yeah i think the character everybody is behaving according think the character always yeah the, the clarity of the characterization is still there I, I think part of the issue here is that the story doesn't feel that essential i mean ultron is a major character in there this are universe too many of them yeah but the picture is really crowded that's really the issue it just feels like there are way too many i mean it, the thing is it's a huge universe and for marvel they have an imperative to try to bring as many of these characters into this world for commercial reasons And I think there's something interesting about that challenge as a storyteller. How do you wrap your head around that when it's incredibly time-consuming and costly to make any one of these stories come to life? And Whedon was the only one, I think, who really succeeded at doing that with the previous Avengers movie. So I guess lightning doesn't strike twice. But at the same time, I, I was watching this movie and I just kept wondering... Isn't there some point where you have to pull back a little bit? And it made me wonder if there really is an expiration date for the kind of success Marvel has been having with these movies. Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, the only other one that it, that that was as disappointing was Iron Man Two, which which was worse, I would argue. Oh yeah. Because there they were they were having to 
to fulfill so many different, you know, they had to introduce this character and they had to have, you know, the action figure and they had to get from here to there. And that's part of the problem here. But at the end, you know, it's kind of, you know, I don't want to be spoilery, but there is something satisfying about who's going to stay with us. The one caveat I have is that um, Scarlett Johansson is a terrific superhero and well, you know, she can handle it. She can do it, you know. So Um, why do we have to spend uh, most of the movie watching her and the whole that's my problem we do not, not need that and it makes me angry it makes yeah. me the problem the problem is is that when you have that one person can't there can't be anything wrong with them they they have to represent all women you know and so you, you it's the same i was annoyed with furious seven for the same reason i mean they've given shell rodriguez kick-ass thing to do in the past, but this time she was sort of the weepy, you know, girlfriend. You know, it, it, it was really depressing to me <laughs> that the, that they have to carry the relationship aspect. But she, that so the Hulk and, and Black Widow have to have a relationship. I mean, I, come on. And also. Another thing that I won't spoil is what happens So the Hulk at the end of this movie, but it's clearly setting the stage for another movie. And that impulse, while interesting or at least holding some potential in the sense that it can advance different kinds of stories, is also annoying in the context of an individual movie. But at the same time, it's it's almost irrelevant, right? Because there's enough there for this movie to probably satisfy moviegoers. It's going to make a ridiculous amount of cash, right? Oh yeah, it's going to do fine. And and you have you know you you now have Aaron Johnson and Elizabeth Olsen. You know, there's some new blood, uh, which is welcome, of course. It, the, the problem with a movie like this is they've all the oldsters and the youngsters all in the same movie, and it's just too much to juggle. And it's annoying because I was just starting to get into seeing the Avengers as they stood in the first movie. I don't need the new guys, you know? It's like, let's let's just stick with this universe until these people need to retire, and then we can move on, you know? But it just keeps moving, and on some set, on some level, I feel like you can sense the anxiety of studios to make the best commercial product possible with this kind of work, when it doesn't totally hold together. It's more transparent, wouldn't you say? That, that there is this sort of this need to make such a meaty product that gets people to go to the theater as opposed to just waiting till it shows right. up on VOD. That is the, that is the thing that go, that I was very aware of when I went to CinemaCon and CinemaCon is the exhibitors convention in Las Vegas, which just ended last night. Each of the studios puts on a big dog and pony show. They bring in stars, they bring in directors, they bring in, most importantly, they bring in footage and, and you see it on the big screen. I mean, for example, one of the films that we've all seen the trailer for uh, Mad Max Fury Road, but to see it in 3D, oh, my God, they gave us the glasses. And you could see what George Miller is, go- is doing with that. That is going to blow people's minds. I can't it, wait for it that. It will make them go to the theater. I know. I, I'm, I'm, we're going to. See it at camp. And then there's Barco Escape, where you've got three screens, you know, two screens on each side. And, you know, they did the Maze Runner and that. So they're actually building theaters and doing luxury theaters. It's all about trying to get people to show up at the movie theater. And it's all about scale. But what I, what struck me also about the uh, product at CinemaCon is that the studios are actually so anxious and so worried about this 
that while we can fault them to some degree for going too far in the direction of, of you know, uh, tent poles and scale and, and mindless formulas and sequels, which, of course, they're doing, um, there was a lot more good stuff. There was a lot more material that looked promising than usual. They're working harder. They're going to try to get us to go to the theaters. Well, I mean, it's interesting. In a good way. I mean, it's also... It's notable because it seems like there's an increased anxiety with sort of the old guard pushing back on the whole idea of the VOD market. I mean, there was this panel where Julianne Moore was saying that she doesn't think day and day day and date releases are a valuable way for a movie to be seen and are not doing it justice. Earlier this week, I did an interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people, for this little indie Maggie that he's in which is being released by Roadside Attractions next month, day and date. And he said he thought they should have released it in theaters first for three weeks or so before putting it on VOD. So it's, he's not- I never thought I would live to say the, see the day that I would agree with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and by the way, the new Terminator looks horrible. Looks like terrible. Um But I will say, I will say that I was, uh, one of the things that's, that I learned talking to various different people at CinemaCon is that there are different forces um, at work here, and it's a little bit uh, scary, actually. But on the one hand, the the cable companies who are the VOD purveyors want the premium VOD where they can charge extra uh, ahead of time, um, you know, before a movie even hits theaters, then you have, um, I would say, most people who are on the side of the filmmakers and, and the distributors would agree, the theatrical distributors would agree that having three weeks or four weeks in a theater, at, at least, is, is, a, is a very good thing. You brand it, you get reviews, you get word of mouth, you, 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 can, you can sell the movie and get people to want to come and see it. All of that is good. There are all different agendas. You could, you, you know, if you talk to someone like uh, Ted Mundorf at Land, Landmark, you know, he wants to be able to keep his options open and, and have be able to move a movie around the whole country over the course of a long period of, of time and have options about the best way to, to play it. Or, or if you talk to um, uh, the, 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 net, the, the Netflix people, by the way, used to pay for independent films, and now they want more uh, exclusive rights so that people have to come to them to see the film. In, on Netflix, and so and they have all the money in the world, so they have a different agenda, and, and Amazon has a different agenda, and and the the thing that's worrisome is that the needs of the individual movie, where there could be a calibrated, really someone like Tom Quinn at, at Radius is trying to play with this in a very innovative way, or someone like like Tim League, you know, how do you move the movie from theatrical to iTunes to to Netflix, to, to, you know, Comcast. I would also say that the fact that the Comcast 
merger, uh, Time Warner merger has fallen apart, it's a good thing because that was a that would have been a bad thing for for movies also. Yeah, I mean, I think what what you're touching on is just that there's just a, such a fragmentation going on in terms of the way that we consume media, and also this agnosticism among most people in this, in terms of where they watch things that you really need different kinds of incentives for different kinds of environments depending on what you your sensibilities are and what you like to do i mean there's this variability that has to be I'm addressed to... by really strategy no i mean i'm it's just sort of bringing it out to a more abstract level i mean just everybody needs customization and if the if people aren't willing to adapt to that then a lot of movies are going to get lost that's what I'm afraid of. What I'm afraid of is that the institutional entities are all going to be fighting for what they want and trying to, here's what, it, here's part of the problem. They're trying to turn it into a, a formula, a cookie cutter thing that the movie has to be this many weeks or here or there. And, and they're not thinking about the consumer and what's best for them sampling the movie. Um, it's, I, I agree with that. That is, I'm really worried about it. I'm worried about it because there are going to be a lot of theater. There are going to be a lot of distributors who aren't willing to put the, you know, even Weinstein isn't doing the same kinds of support for films that are worthy that they, that they used to. And, and in, in, in the VOD universe, you simply, so many titles are just floating around that no one will ever look at. Right, absolutely, and and that's you know going full circle exactly what the Cannes Film Festival and others like it end up highlighting because you go and see so much stuff that's on an artistic level just outstanding, but then when you start talking to distributors about what they can do with these things, I mean it's just you know there's different scales of course, but even something that's sort of mid level and could have some commercial success could also just be completely ignored if it doesn't have somebody behind it who really understands that it needs to work in different places at different times in different kinds of ways you know and so i think it's it's not like we're talking about anything entirely new here but based on what you're saying from CinemaCon, it sounds like there's been some movement on the on the kind of you know massive scale of hollywood to figure out how to get people interested in going to the theaters again so hopefully if there is some progress there that will have a trickle-down effect so that the movies that really struggle to get seen in even a you know, small sampling of theaters in the country will also be able to benefit from them. I don't know if that's something that you know, 3D technologies are going to have an impact on, but it's, it's something that exhibitors and distributors and marketers are all going to have to grapple with in, in much more kind of experimental ways in the coming years. Yeah, the the good news is that on the independent side, there's a great deal of innovation and flexibility, and and the digital universe, by the way, turns out to be uh, to open up all sorts of doors that weren't open before. Whether it's 3D or or some of these other new uh, content that can come in during the week when when the theaters are are quiet. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Speaking of sort of new experiences, I'm really excited about next week. I'll be going off to the Stanley Film Festival. It's a horror film festival in Estes Park, Colorado, in the hotel where Stephen <laughs> King dreamed up The Shining, and there's a lot of cool All stuff right. going on there. So that's sort of on my agenda. What's up next for you, Anne? 
Well, I'm 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 recovering from from uh, from Las Vegas, and um, and I'm I'm basically uh, I've got I've got about I'm surprised you're traveling so soon because we do leave for Cannes fairly fairly soon. Oh my God! Don't remind me. <laughs> I feel like it's such a first world problem. I always dread it, and then you go there, and it's a whirlwind of activity, and it's uh, these amazing movies, and it's totally worthwhile. But for now, I'm just gonna try to pretend that the next big thing on the horizon for me is this little festival in Colorado. Have a good time. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.